0: I think by the end of 2021, we can be hitting 30 young people, and I know this is pushing the limits for parents, but I'm ready for those young people then to get married to a Holy Ghost filled spouse and start living for God as young adults and as married couples and what we do right now, what we're doing with them right now, what we're teaching them and spending time and. Showing them how to live for God is going to carry them into their adulthood. Godly children make godly young adults. Godly young adults make godly adults. And godly married couples and so on and so forth. Excited about what God is doing. So be praying for our young people. Be praying for our kids. And that God continues to move. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14, says, Follow peace with all men and holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. Looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness bringing up trouble you, thereby many be defiled. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person, As Esau, who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. For we know how that afterward, when he would have inherited the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no place of repentance, though he sought it carefully with tears. There's a lot that could be preached from verses 14 to verses 17. This morning we really just read that to give context to the rest of our scripture today. Verse 18, for ye are not come unto the mount that might be touched and that burned with fire, nor unto blackness and darkness, darkness and tempest, the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words, which voice they that heard entreated that the word should not be spoken to them anymore, for they could not endure that which was commanded. And if so much as a beast touch the mountain, it shall be stoned, thrust through with a dart. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I exceedingly fear and quake. And we're going to give context to that reference here in just a little bit. So if it's not making a whole lot of sense, it will. Verse 22, but you are come unto Mount Zion, unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable, that means without number, company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the first. Born, which are written in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaketh better things than that of Abel. Going to preach this morning from verse 22, but ye are come unto Mount Zion and unto the city of living God. The city of the living God. Let's put our Bibles down. Let's go before the Lord in prayer this morning. Jesus, we love you. Jesus, we thank you that your presence is here with us. God, I thank you that you have put together a plan by which we can find salvation, we can find hope, we can find life, we can find blessing, God, that we can find peace, we can find joy, comfort, strength. God, I thank you for your church. I thank you for your plan. I thank you for your kingdom. In the name of Jesus, we magnify your name, God. We give you praise today. We give you honor today. We give you glory today. Why don't we clap our hands this morning and give God thanks. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for your word. Thank you, Jesus, for your word. In Jesus' name, you can be seated this morning. The city of the living God. What We are experiencing here today is unlike anything that man has ever known. We understand when it began. We understand that our roots are in the day of Pentecost and that that is where we find the plan of salvation. But we don't just find it there. We find allusions to it. We find the plan of God has always been faith, obedience, and blood. I don't want to... Don't worry. We find it all the way back in the Garden of Eden where Adam and Eve first fell into sin. Some believe that they were in the Garden of Eden as little as seven days. If that. Just a few days before they fell into sin. We don't know for sure. But they fell into sin. And so what did God have to do? God had to uh, cover them, the Bible says. They had tried to cover themselves. They, their eyes were open. They realized that they were not clothed. They realized they were naked. We're all adults in here. We can say the word and understand the context. That they were both physically and spiritually naked. Their relationship with God had been taken away. It had been stripped away. And so Adam and Eve tried to make themselves a covering. They wanted to be covered. So they get leaves, fig leaves, and they sew these leaves together to make, the Bible calls them aprons, to just barely get by. That's that's what they just, well, man, if we can just cover up a little bit. But God looked at them and they said, you know, God said "It's it's not quite enough. And so God reached into the garden, grabbed a couple of animals. He killed the animals and he made them coats of skin. So there was death that took place. There was blood that was shed. And so you find it all throughout history that when God is dealing with mankind, that that mankind, first of all, had to have faith that God existed. They had to be obedient to the plan of God and that there had to be bloodshed, which is why in the Old Testament you find they were sacrificing animals, uh, uh, animals that were pure, animals that did not have any blemish. And so those those animal sacrifices pushed back the judgment of God for another year or another set period of time until God understood that there's got to be a permanent solution. A permanent solution to the permanent predicament of sin. He said, I understand that man is going to fall into sin. I understand that they are born into sin. They're born into a sinful world. They're shapen by that sin. They're shapen by iniquity. It forms their life and you see it all around you. Some of us have experienced it for ourselves. If we, if we were not raised in church, then we find that our, our decisions, our lifestyle was based upon things that made us feel good. Based upon things that may not have been godly. They were, we were shapen by our iniquity. The Bible calls it. And so we find that what we've got here today is not like what the people of God in the book of Exodus experienced. That God sends Moses to be his spokesman, to be his deliverer. It's a long story. He goes back into Egypt and he leads after the plagues, after Pharaoh's heart has been hardened and softened and hardened and softened back and forth until... There is death until an angel passes by and they've had to kill a Passover lamb. They eat it. They partake of it. But they take the blood and they apply it to the doors of their lives. And there is so much that we could preach and teach about here this morning. We're not going. To. We're just laying a quick little foundation. You got more questions, we can cover them in an in-depth Bible study, and be happy to do that. But the blood was applied to the door of their house. It was a type of covering. It covered their homes. There had been death. There had been bloodshed. The blood was applied. The Egyptians did not apply the blood to their homes. And so throughout that night, you hear sounds of wailing and sounds of mourning as the angel that passed by the homes that had blood applied to the doors would go into the homes that the blood was not applied. And it would kill the firstborn son in every household. And so if if the blood was applied to the home, then everybody in the home was safe. If the blood was not applied to the home, then everyone in the home was not safe. So Long story short, Moses and Aaron lead the people of God out of the land of Egypt. God is calling them out. He wants to have a relationship with them. He wants to deliver them from slavery. He wants to deliver them from the world. Egypt in the Bible is always a type of the world. And so God is bringing His people out of that situation. And God wants to reveal Himself to His people. God wants to, the Bible calls it making a covenant. God wants to make a covenant with his people. If you'll serve me, I will bless you. If you'll listen to me, if you'll obey me, then you will have a life unlike anything you have ever imagined. It was not a dictatorship. He said, but I want to be your God. I want you to be my people. I created you to have a relationship with you. And so I want to prove myself to you. Most of these folks had never heard from the voice of God. There was millions of them, but God said, I want to show myself to them. So in Exodus chapter 19, God tells Moses, he said, hey, go tell them to spend three days getting ready. Tell them to fast. Tell them to wash their clothes. Tell them to take a bath. Tell them to be as clean physically as they can be. What's God doing? God's trying to get them in the mindset that I'm, I'm moving up. There's a, a transition happening that I, I'm not living in the world any longer, so I don't want to look like the world. I don't want to smell like the world. I don't want to taste like the world. I don't I don't want anything that the world's got. So I want to do my best to present myself to God. Amen. Okay. And so Moses brings the people to Mount Sinai. It's a big mountain. Moses brought forth the people in Exodus 19 and verse 17. They come out of their camp to meet with God. Man, what a what an experience they're getting ready to have. He said, hey, kids, let's go. Well, Dad, where are we going? We're going to meet with God. What? I better change my shoes. We're going to meet with God. And they stood at the, the Bible calls it the nether part. They didn't Climb up the mountain, but they stood at the base of the mountain and it had been up to Moses. God told Moses, Hey, Moses, mark, mark it out. Where does the mountain start? Because there's getting ready to be a moment of power, a moment of demonstration. Find it in verse 18, the description. Mount Sinai was all together on a smoke. It was smoking almost like a volcano, like a thick fog was descending. Because the Lord descended upon the mountain in fire. There is very literally smoke and there is fire. It looks like the entire mountain is being consumed. Like a wild forest fire. Whereas Moses had just had the little experience with the little burning bush. Just down the road a little bit in the plains of Sinai. Now the entire mountain is on fire. Now the entire mountain is smoking. The entire mountain is quaking greatly. It's not being consumed. It's not falling apart. But God is meeting with his people. Verse 20, And the Lord came down upon Mount Sinai on the top of the mount. The Lord called Moses up to the top of the mountain. Moses goes up. Imagine what that walk was like. The mountain is on fire. The mountain is smoking. And he said, hey, come on, dude. Walk through it. And Moses is walking through it. And everyone can hear the voice of God. God is speaking to his people. But in verse 21... The Lord said unto Moses, go down and charge the people lest they break through unto the Lord to gaze and many of them perish. He said, I don't want them coming up the mountain. They're going to get curious when they hear the voice of God, when they see everything that's going on. But at this time, God was saying, it's not for everyone. I don't want them to, to break through out of curiosity and come and touch the mountain where the presence of God is. And many of them perish. And let the priests also, which come near to the Lord, sanctify themselves, lest the Lord break forth upon them. Moses said to the Lord, the people cannot come up to the Mount Sinai, for thou chargest us saying, set bounds about the Mount and sanctify it. Moses had a job to do. He had to set the limits. Well, where does the mountain start? Well, I don't know. But this is where Moses said that it starts. So we can't get any closer to the mountain. We cannot get any closer to God than this. And the Lord said unto him, Away, get thee down, and thou shalt come up, you and Aaron with you. But don't let the priests come up. Don't let the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break forth upon them. There was a a dynamic atmosphere. God had given instruction as to how he would meet with the people, when he would meet with the people. He's going to seal his covenant with them. He wants to make himself real unto them, make himself known unto them, so they weren't just taking Moses' word for it, but God was going to show himself to the people. And this meeting between humanity and divinity was marked with this tremendous outburst of power. The fire, the smoke, the mountain was quaking. And all of these things, uh, uh, there there was natural power and there was spiritual power. Now the people were marked by God. They were a peculiar people. They were a peculiar treasure. But they were not all able to go to that place. They were not all able to go up the mountain. In fact, not even all of the priests were able to go up. Only Moses and Aaron. Everybody else had to stay behind. But that's what the writer in Hebrews was trying to convey to us in his writing. He was saying, listen, you've not come today. You've not come today to a Mount Zion uh, or a Mount Sinai that cannot be touched. You're cannot. you not in a place today where you can only come so far and only Moses and Aaron can experience the voice of God, the power, the presence of God. You're not locked in right here. If this was a mountain, he's saying, you're not locked in right here. He said, but you've come to the new Jerusalem. You've come to a heavenly place. You've come not to Mount Sinai but to Mount Zion you've not come to a place that will cost your physical life if you get too close to his presence but this is that which was spoken of the prophet Joel he's saying it's a new dispensation it's a new time and what was not approachable before is now become approachable the people then could not Get into the presence of God. But God was letting us know. He said, I've not broken forth upon you. I want to break forth into you. He said, I don't just want the mountain to have my presence, but I want to be in you. I want to dwell in you. It's a plan that was set in place by a living God. But you are come unto Mount Zion, unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels. That's why the word of God can say, come and be seated together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus when we come into the house of God we are not required to go so far and stop we are not required to go until we feel goosebumps but stop before he's dwelling inside of us but we have the opportunity, we have the ability we have the obligation to get into his presence until his presence gets into us It's a plan that was set in place. The city of the living God. Matthew 28, verse 5, the angel answered and said unto the women in the garden, as they're coming to anoint the body of Jesus after his crucifixion, Fear not ye, for I know that you seek Jesus, which was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come, see the place where the Lord lay. And go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he goeth before you into Galilee. There shall you see him, lo, I have told you. Here we find him to be a God who faced death itself and overcame it. Did he suffer death? Yes. But by his suffering and by his resurrection, he defeated death. Therefore, when you and I come to the mountain of the living God or the city Of the living God. We can walk into his presence. He is alive as Alpha and Omega. He understood that there was a need for a plan that would work from the beginning of time to the end of time. We don't find God changing his plan from Genesis through Revelation. We find God unveiling his plan a little bit more. We find the thread of the salvation process becoming more evident until we get into the New Testament until we get into the dispensation of grace, until we get into the time of the Gentiles, we find ourselves understanding then that the plan of God is and always has been symbolic of repentance and baptism in Jesus' name with the infilling of the Holy Ghost, living a holy and separated life. He's a God who knew there needed to be a plan that would work for every nation every creed, every ethnicity, every language, every age, every dispensation. He understood. Faith, obedience, and the blood is going to work. The writer of the book of Hebrews speaks about this new Jerusalem, heavenly city. He speaks about a multitude of angels. He speaks about citizens that reside there. It's a place where streets are paved with gold. The river is made of crystals. Gates are built of pearls. But the citizens of Jerusalem, this heavenly Jerusalem, are the saints of the living God. They come from every nation. They come from every tongue. They come from every creed. Jesus Christ being the governor of this heavenly city and desiring that whomsoever believeth would be a citizen of this country with its complete benefits. We find in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 13 the revelation that not all of us were great and perfect from the beginning but now in Christ Jesus in verse 13, ye who were sometimes were afar off. Sometimes you found yourself at odds. You found yourself unable to come in to the presence of God. Here in the book of Ephesians, he's speaking specifically to the Gentile people. Well, what are Gentiles? They're anyone who's not a Jew. Anyone who's not a Hebrew, that's you and I. He said, sometimes you were far off. There was a time in history. There was a point in time where you and I could not come any further than the courtyard of the Gentiles. We couldn't get into the house of God. But Paul is writing to the church at Ephesus saying, I know that some time ago you were far off, but now you've been made nigh by the blood of Jesus Christ. You've been brought close, for he is our peace, who hath made both one and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us. He said, now I'm breaking down the wall of salvation. It's not just for one nation. It's not just for one people, but it's for whosoever will, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make of in himself of twain one new man, so making peace. He said he's making in himself completely God, completely man. He came. Robed in humanity, to break apart the partition that kept people away from God, they came and preached peace to you, which were far off, and to them that were not. Some were closer than the others, but the message was the same, no matter their location. For through Him we both have access by one Spirit, the Holy Spirit, unto the Father. Verse 19, Now therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. And are built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone and whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord, he said, I it, it's both from the prophets, it's both from the old testament and from the apostles, it's from the new testament, and the thing that puts those two together is Jesus Christ, the chief cornerstone, fitly joined together, where everything comes together fitly framed and grows into the holy temple in the Lord, in whom also are you are building up together for inhabitation of God through the Spirit. You and I have the the ability to become part of the kingdom of God when we are born again of the water and of the spirit. Just as every nation. Pacify me with this thing, okay? Just like every nation has requirements for becoming citizens. Jesus, too, has requirements for citizenship for this heavenly kingdom. I mean, you might be able to cross a border somewhere. And you might be able, I I might be able to get on an airplane with a heat. And I might be able to fly to the Philippines. I might be able to rent an apartment there. I might be able to live there. But just because I'm living in that country does not make me a citizen. I might be able to drive across the Canadian border if I really, really like snow and French cuisine. And I might be able to live in Canada. But just because I'm living there does not mean I am a citizen of Canada. There are certain requirements in order to become a citizen of a country. In fact, I have been told that when any individual from any nation desires to become a United States citizen, that part of the requirement process is that they stand in a ceremony and denounce, denounce their country of origin. So if they had come from China, they denounce the country of China. If they come from Canada, they denounce the country of Canada. If they come from Mexico, they denounce the country of Mexico because they're no longer Mexican. They're no longer Canadian. They're no longer Chinese. They have become American. And so just like the natural process, when I come into the city of the living God, there are some requirements. And it starts with repentance. It starts with a denouncing of my old lifestyle. It starts by my saying, I do not want to live in sin any longer. Getting ahead of myself. The best place to find out what it takes to make it to heaven is in the Word of God. Second Timothy 3, 16. I'm going to move quickly. I've got a lot of ground to cover. Uh, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. If you want to find the answers to life, if you want to find the answers on how to make it to heaven, go to the Word of God. Scripture is given by inspiration of God. God, it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be perfect, not just excellent, perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. God's word is a tool that will help me be more like God. He's equipped us with tools to make sure that we can make it. He's equipped us with the Word of God so we can come out of the world, we can come out of sin, and we can stay out of sin. John 14 and verse 5, Thomas saith unto him, Lord, we know not whither thou goest. How can we know the way? Jesus saith unto him, I am the way. Thomas is saying, Lord, we know that you're leaving us, but we don't know how to find you. We don't know how to get to this city of the living God. How can we know the way? And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father, but by me. He is the way. He is the road. He is the truth. He is life. Hebrews 2 and verse 1, therefore we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him? And was the prophets. God also bearing them witness and the apostles, both with signs and wonders, with diverse miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost according to his own will. So, pastor, what are the scriptural steps for salvation? You're preaching about Jesus. You're preaching about the city of this living God. We want to go there. Jesus said he's the way. Tell us what he said. Tell us how we can get there, the first step in this salvation process is having faith that God does exist. Believing, trusting in God. It's the essential first step to salvation. Hebrews eleven six. But without faith it is impossible to please Him. For he that cometh to God must believe that He is. That's why we're in church today. Because either we believe he exists or we want to know whether he exists or not. And if you're having questions about whether God exists or not, coming to church is the best place that you can be. I'm glad you're here today. We must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. So without faith, it's impossible to please Him because I've got to believe that He is. I have to believe that He exists. I have to believe that He is also a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. That means that if I seek Him, I'm going to find Him. Amen. The second step is repentance, asking forgiveness denouncing your old life, denouncing the old way of life, turning away from sin. Acts 3 and verse 19, repent ye therefore. Repent ye therefore. I love this part. And be converted. Repentance is not conversion. But it goes along with conversion. Repent ye therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out The times of refreshing. Oh, doesn't that sound good? Shall come from the presence of the Lord. Acts 3.19 really does talk about repentance, baptism in Jesus' name, and the infilling of the Holy Ghost. Repent ye and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out. That leads us to baptism. My sins are remitted. My sins are wiped away when I'm baptized in the name of Jesus. Mark 16 and verse 15 says, And he, being Jesus, said unto them, Go ye into all the world, and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth, that's that faith thing again, and is baptized, shall be saved. But he that believeth not shall be damned. We can go back to Hebrews 11.6. We've got to believe. Believing is vital. Don't ever discount someone who says that they believe in God. Well, I believe in Him. That's good. That's not a bad thing. we just got to get them from belief through the process of conversion and then make them disciples. The first step's already done if they believe. Hey, believe. Without faith, it's impossible to believe. I'm sorry, it's impossible to please God. He that cometh to God must believe that He is and that He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. Mark 16 and verse 15 and 16 are saying the same thing. He that believeth and is baptized. If I believe, I'm going to diligently seek Him. Being baptized is diligently seeking God. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. You see how when you throw the identity of Jesus Christ into this thing as being God incarnate, God manifest in the flesh, how everything just becomes fitly framed together. It becomes locked in, solid, where there's there's no way around it. There's no way to argue against it. And And when I have faith and I repent and I'm baptized, I'm immersed in the water in Jesus' name for the remission of sins, then I have the opportunity to experience the infilling of the gift of the Holy Ghost. Romans 8 and verse 9, but ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If so, be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. Paul is writing to the Hebrews. We read it in our opening text. You've not come to the, the to Mount Zion that, that cannot be Uh, you've not come to Mount Sinai rather that cannot be touched but you're coming to the city of the living God you're coming to the new Jerusalem you're at Mount Zion and you've come to a place where where God is not unapproachable you've come to a place today where God is not just sitting high and looking low you've not come to a church today that believes that it's for us and not for you it's not for me and, and not for you it's not for me only it's not for you only but it's for who so will. God doesn't just want you to feel him. God wants to live inside of you. Any man have not the spirit of Christ. If I've not been filled with the gift of the Holy Ghost, then I am not his. And pastor, that's a hard statement. It it might feel that way. But I heard it said this way once. He said, you know, if you were in a room in a house that was on fire, now, obviously, this is hyperbole. We don't want to experience this. I don't want you to experience this. But if I was in a house that was on fire and there was one door to get out, would I stay in the room complaining that there weren't more doors? Or would I go through the door that I know would work? I'm getting out of this joint. So if we take that and we say, okay, I want to make it to heaven. Now we know that there's a broad way that leads to destruction. And you can do anything you want to do on that road. You can live however you want to live on that road. And it's a road and you've got a destination, but it's not pleasant. But there's also a road that the Bible says is narrow. There are some limitations. But... There are limitations to my flesh, not limitations in the Spirit. And that way leads to a gate that leads to life everlasting. So, would I complain that I can't indulge my flesh as much, but I get to live eternally in peace, joy, happiness, with my God, before His presence? Or would I rather walk a broad path where I can do whatever I want to now, but then for eternity, I'm in a very real hell? We don't preach about hell a lot. But maybe we should. The Bible calls hell a place where there is eternal torment. Eternal. You know what that means? It means it doesn't end. It's hard for us to wrap our minds around. It really is. Just as hard as it is to wrap our minds around living in heaven for eternity. Because eternity is is just so out there. It just sounds so new age. It's not. It's eternal. Everlasting. It's hard for us because we're We're bound by time. I mean, right now it's 12.05 and your stomachs are starting to You're like, man. Shut up! You're not. You're really not. Some of you just want to take a nap. Some of you want to eat lunch. I get it. We're, We're locked into time. So everything we do is bound by time. It's based on time. So we start talking about otherworldly, supernatural things that are not bound by time. It's hard to grasp. So there's eternal life or eternal torment. The Bible says that hell is a place where the worm does not die. I mean, out of any any kind of animal that could be there. A worm? Really? That's gross. It is. They're not just little cute fishing worms. Fishing worms aren't cute. But they're a lot better than what's in You're talking about flesh-eating worm, where the body is continually being burned by fire, battered by rocks that are falling called brimstone. And there's no relief ever. I've heard people say, I'm just my life is a living hell. Oh no, it's not. No, it's a cakewalk. I know it's I know it's hard. I'm not discounting that, but it is really a cakewalk compared to hell. The worm doesn't die, where there's Fire burning eternally. Intense heat. But the body is never consumed. Flesh eating worm. Where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. That means there the folks who find themselves there, will be in such torment that they'll not just be grinding their teeth, they'll be biting each other. That I know it sounds far-fetched, but it's the truth. So, if I'm in a room with one door, the building is on fire, and that one door says, Faith, Repentance, baptism in Jesus' name, the infilling of the Holy Ghost, run through the door. Amen. The Bible says it this way. Jesus says, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. There are two polar opposites. And let me just tell you today that living for God is not burdensome. Living for God is not a life of constraints. It's a life of freedom. Salvation of God is separating us from sin. It's reuniting, reuniting ourselves with Him. It's not a life of bondage living for God, it's a life of freedom. It's a life of liberty. Why? Because I'm living in His Spirit. And the Bible says that where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. I've not come to a kingdom of God today that can't be touched, that can't be experienced. But He came robed in flesh. He bled. He died on a cross. He was buried and placed in a tomb. He was resurrected and poured out His Spirit so you and I can have life So you and I can come to the city of the living God. I'm about out of time. Faith that God is, faith that God does, God wants you. God wants me. He wants us. He wants a relationship with us. If if you could agree with that today, why don't you just lift your hand? I, I agree with that, Pastor. I know God exists. I can feel that. God exists. He wants a relationship with me. Thank you. We're, we're all past the first step. We're all there. That brings us to repentance. And it's really, it's a marvelous thing. It separates us from sin. This salvation process stuff. It separates us from sin and reunites us with God. Jesus himself preached faith and repentance. He said, repent ye and believe the gospel. Believing the gospel is having faith. Repentance is repentance. The biblical word for repentance means to be sorry Sigh, groan. It also means to turn back, to make a radical change in attitude towards sin and towards God. That meaning is the one that was most frequently used by the prophets in the Old Testament. And the New Testament, the Greek word, meant to think differently. Repentance is more than, than tears. It's more than just praying. It, it does involve those things. It does involve remorse. But it's also a change in my thinking. How does that happen? I'm going to think differently. Reverse my direction. Change my mind. Change my purpose. Repentance involves remorse. It involves being sorry for our sins. Regretting our failures. It involves an inward change of thinking. A new mindset. A new way of thinking. And it involves an outward change of direction. I'm living a different lifestyle. I'm going to have different behaviors. We can experience remorse without repenting. We can cry after we've gotten caught. But while repentance does begin with regret and godly sorrow, it goes beyond that to changing both my thinking and my behavior. 2 Corinthians 7 and verse 10. For godly sorrow worketh or leads to repentance, to salvation. Not to be repented of. Not to be turned away from. God doesn't want you to leave the city of the living God. But the sorrow of the world worketh that. Now, repentance is a type of death. We see it I mean, so much here. Jesus Christ died on the cross. That is symbolic to you and I of our repentance. When I repent, I'm dying to my old ways. I'm dying to my old, sinful, carnal man. Hebrews 6, verse 1 says, Therefore, leaving or going forth from the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on unto perfection. Not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptisms and of laying on of hands and of resurrection of the dead and of eternal judgment. So uh, repentance helps me. I die to my old man like he died on a cross. Okay? After he died, he was buried. The old man was put in the ground. You and I are buried with him. By baptism in Jesus' name. That's where we are buried. We're not left in the water. We're not going to hold you under until you stop bubbling. But baptism washes my sins away. Acts 22 and verse 16. And now, why tarriest thou? Arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins. Calling on the name of the Lord. The word remission is a Greek word that means freedom, pardon, pardon. Deliverance, forgiveness, and liberty. It's like I have a record down at the courthouse, and when I'm baptized in Jesus' name, it's wiped clean as if it never happened. Every sin that I have committed up to that point is wiped away as if it never happened. As if it never happened. The new Creature. Romans 6, verse 3. Know ye not that so many of us were baptized into Jesus Christ? We're baptized into His death. Therefore, we are buried with Him by baptism into death. It's our old man that has died. And when something dies, it needs to be buried. So we've got to be buried with Him in baptism. After that, His disciples began to preach the infilling of the Holy Ghost. After the first step of faith, repentance, and then the second step of water, baptism in Jesus' name, the next fundamental step in the scriptural plan of salvation is being filled with the gift of of the Holy Ghost the New Testament speaks of the Holy Ghost in several different ways it calls it a gift there are times where it says that they were filled with the Holy Ghost other times it says they were baptized with the Holy Ghost they were immersed they were covered and then receiving the gift of the Holy Ghost Acts 19 talks about the coming of the Holy Ghost the falling of or the pouring out of the Holy Ghost. The word means, uh, the the Greek word is pneuma. It means a current of air, a breath or breeze, a soul or a spirit. That the word tells us that it's like the breath of God. God begins to breathe into mankind. He did it in the Garden of Eden with Adam. Adam was laying on the ground in just the form, a dust form of a man the bible says that god breathed into adam as a pile of dirt and adam became a living soul so when you and i are born of the spirit when you and i are filled with the gift of the holy ghost he breathes into us the breath of life and we become a new creature he gives us the power to overcome sin on a daily basis let's stand this morning He tells them, he said, it's going to be a comforter to you. In your times of distress, when you are filled with the gift of the Holy Ghost, you can find comfort. You can approach not just the mountain of God. He said, but you can have everything. You can experience the power, the presence of God like you've never dreamed before. You're not come into a place today that believes that we should limit God. Like He died on a cross, we die to our old man in repentance. Like He was buried in a garden tomb, we're buried with Him in baptism, washing away our sins. But like He rose again, On the third day, with life anew, you and I rise again by the infilling of His Spirit. The Bible says that any time someone received the gift of the Holy Ghost, that God would take control of their tongue and they would speak a different language. Well, pastor, that's kind of creepy. Well, they thought it was interesting. Acts chapter 2 and verse 1 says that when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord and in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues, like as a fire sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the gift of the Holy Ghost or with the Holy Ghost rather and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Bible tells us that our tongue, though it's the smallest member of our body, is the hardest for us to control. And so when we come into the house of God with a mind made up, I'm going to diligently seek Him. I'm going to give God control of my tongue. and the Holy Ghost is going to start speaking through me. It's like you take a glass that's empty and you put it underneath a faucet and you turn the faucet on and water begins to fill the glass. begins to fill the glass from the bottom. And as the water approaches the top of the glass, if you don't turn the water off, the glass will overflow. When we come into the house of God and we begin to lift our hands, that's a sign I'm surrendering to you, God. It's a universal sign of surrender. <laughs> I'm surrendering to you, God. We begin to pray and we begin to worship Him. His spirit starts filling from the bottom. And I'm going to hear words come to my mind that I've never heard before. My mouth might go dry, it might feel like I've got cotton balls in my mouth, my tongue might feel thick and heavy. And it can be scary. It can make me afraid. But it's not anything to be afraid of. It's the power of the presence of God that wants to pour out of me. And if I continue to worship Him and continue to praise Him, when I hear those words come to my mind, I'm going to go ahead and speak those out. And I'm going to believe that God is going to speak through me. That God's going to fill me with His Spirit. It was such an experience that in the book of Acts, when it first began to happen, there were folks that were around that said, these guys are drunk. These folks are out of their mind. They are on some sort of substance that's making them act this way but Peter stood up and he said no this is not anything that is worldly this is something that's supernatural we have stepped into the city of a living God we are experiencing the power and the presence of God that can not only be touched and felt it can fill me I wonder today if I've got anybody in here that says, you know what, Pastor? I want to go a little bit further today. I want to climb the mountain today. I want what God has for me. I want to experience what God has for my life. I want to know His purpose. I want to feel His presence. I want Him to move in my home. I want Him to move in my heart, in my mind. In the name of Jesus, I want what He's got for me. I wonder if we'd find a place to pray today. I wonder if we could lift our hands. If we could... Say, God, I want you to forgive me of my sins. God, I, I know I'm not perfect, but I want to do better. I want to live for you. I want you to help me, God. I want you to fill me with your spirit. I want you to wash my sins away. In the name of Jesus. Come on, that's it. Let's pray.